So today we're continuing a series we've been in called What About? Which is just seeking to speak to all the whatabouts that we've been asking. Now, this series is not exhaustive. I've already had people saying, well, next time you do this series, here are some things I want you to talk about. Um, and so that's already you know, being planned. But uh, also remember on Palm Sunday, April 10th, we're going to do a live question response time. We'll be taking questions from the room here at Third and Lindsley. We'll be taking questions from uh, our community online uh, through the YouTube chat. And we've already had some great questions sent in. The gathering should last about six hours that day, so you may want to pack a lunch um, and prepare, you know, prepare yourself to be in it, uh, to win it. Um, today I want to talk about, and this often comes up when you start talking about a more generous, expansive, and inclusive faith. Uh, one of the questions people often ask is, yeah, 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 but what about John 14.6? Is anybody familiar with John 14.6? Essentially, well, we're gonna, I don't want to give it away. We're going to read it at some point. But I want to I begin today, um, and essentially the, the text, John 14.6, just to give you a little bit, it's about, um, is Jesus the only way? And if Jesus is the only exclusive way, what is Jesus the only exclusive way to? And if Jesus is not the only exclusive way, what in the world is he going to mean in this text when we read it? I want to begin with a version of John 14.6 that um, our friend Brian McLaren has in one of his books, and it's called Not John 14.6. Um, so, but I want to read it to you because in most places, when people hear John 14.6, uh, when they hear this, Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. This is actually what they're hearing. This is the lens and the filter through which they hear it. Here's what Brian writes. Uh, you should be very troubled because if you believe in God but not me, you'll be shut out of my Father's house in heaven where there are a few small rooms for the few who get it right. Then Thomas said to him, Lord, what about people who've never even heard of you? Will they go to heaven after they die? Jesus said to him, I'm the only way to heaven, and the truth about me is the only truth that will get you to life after death. Not one person will go to heaven unless they personally understand and believe a clearly defined message about me and personally and consciously ask me to come into their heart. Now, those of you familiar with John 14, 6, is that about it? Is that what people mean when they say it? Well, John 14, 6 says Jesus is the only way. And often what we really mean is that my interpretation of Jesus is the only way. Right? The way I've defined Jesus, the way I've defined faith, the way I've defined God, that's the only way. Is that actually what Jesus is getting at? And I think what this reveals is that, that we have been taught to approach the Bible in a very one-dimensional, maybe two-dimensional kind of way. Right? We approach the Bible, we open one up, or we look at it online, and we find a text, and it says, well, the text says this. And we haven't been taught to bring all sorts of other questions with us, right? We haven't been taught to ask all sorts of other things about the text, like who wrote it? When did they write it? What was going on in the world? All these questions around context. And context is key, really for anything. Because to understand our era, 500 years in the future, assuming we get there, um, not because Jesus is coming back, but because we're doing a terrible job managing the planet. Um, assuming we get there, 500 years, they'll look back on our era and if they don't have a certain understanding of con the context, like if you were to get on an airplane pre-9-11 and you were to get on an airplane post-9-11, were those experiences different? Really different. But if you didn't know about what happened on 9-11, you might say, gosh, it seems like they're just really, really paranoid all of a sudden. Like I got frisked 47 times before I got through security. What is up with that? All right, context is everything. 
And, and so we've been taught to read the Bible in kind of a one-dimensional way that doesn't ask all those questions because we really are going to the Bible looking for answers because we've been sold this bill that the Bible is an answer book. It's kind of like a magic eight ball, right? You shake it up and you get the response and you move on. And I think that reading of the Bible actually has given us some really, really um, bad, just bad theology that's not really grounded in much uh, historically, contextually. It's just sort of what I think the text says. And so I say this because John 14, 6 doesn't live on an island, right? It's not just this one little verse that exists out here somewhere that we reach out and grab and say, yep, see, Jesus is the only way. If you don't believe in Jesus, you're in big, 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 big trouble. It's actually part of something larger. It's a part of this whole thing called the gospel of John. But it's actually part of other stuff, too. Like, it's part of section. There are sections of the gospel of John that go together, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. But to understand why Jesus might say this, we have to actually deal with the entire book that it's a part of. In the entire book of John, uh, how many of you were here for our series through the signs in John? How many of you heard some of that? So, so I, I'm gonna, I don't want to cover too much ground we've already covered But understand this, the book of John was composed in the aftermath of a really, really bad breakup. How many of you have ever written anything in the aftermath of a bad breakup? I mean, some people write songs and make millions of dollars. Go Taylor. Right? Some of us write things in our diary, we write things in our journal, like some of us put it on Facebook because we're just out there to show everybody what's going on in our lives. Right? But this was written in the aftermath of a split because the people we call the first Christians actually weren't Christians. They just weren't. Christianity didn't exist. Uh, And so the first people that followed Jesus and sort of began gathering around his life, they actually didn't start a new religion. You know what they did? They kept going to synagogue. They were Jewish. They were Jewish people. They kept going to the synagogue, and they would hear people read texts, and they would say, my goodness, that text reminds me of Jesus. And then they would tell a Jesus story around that text, right? So it's happening simultaneously. They're going to synagogue. They're reading the Bible in new ways. They're asking different questions. And sometime around the year 88, they pushed too far, and the Jesus followers were expelled from the synagogue. Everything they'd ever known, they got kicked out of their community. And now they're left to sort this out without the structures and people they had known, maybe for some of them, their entire lives. It was a deeply painful split. You can read that all over the Gospel of John. Anybody read the Gospel of John and thought, this guy seems really cranky towards certain groups of people? And unfortunately, tons of anti-Semitism has been rooted in the Gospel of John. Because people have read it as if John is a Christian, and it's a Jewish versus Christian fight, when actually this is a family squabble. These are Jewish people wrestling with what their faith is going to look like in the future. It's what's happening in the Protestant world, the evangelical world, right? It's what's happening with progressive Christianity in some ways. We're all wrestling with what is our faith going to look like in the future, Um, how many of you on a weekly basis have been told because you identify maybe as a progressive Christian that you're not a real Christian? Yeah, yeah, similar kind of experience. And so the Gospel of John is written really specifically. It's written surgically, right? The Gospel of John is not a club, it's a scalpel. 
And what it's trying to do is it's trying to offer a couple things. One is a portrait of who Jesus is for this community. This person we have followed, this person we have followed to the point of losing other relationships, this person we have followed to the point of having our world turned upside down, who is this person for us? And so the writer of John is wanting to say, this is who we see Jesus as. But it's also trying to offer them comfort in the middle of uncertainty. It's trying to offer peace in the middle of chaos. It's trying to give them some, some place to put their feet because they've lost everything that they know. All the structures, everything that they have known up to this point is gone. And so the Gospel of John comes in and tries to offer a place for them to land. We're in this mess because we follow Jesus. Here's who Jesus is for our community. And I say all that to say this. John's Jesus, Jesus in the Gospel of John, says things that the historical Jesus, the person who lived 2,000 years ago, very likely did not say. I don't know if you've grown up and being told, like, everything in the Bible is literally true and everything is what it purports to be. This can be a shocking statement. But here's the truth. Jesus was a faithful, observant Jewish person. Some of the claims made by, the John's, by John's Jesus are not the claims that a first century faithful Jewish person would make within their life. And if they did make them, it's something that would send all the people that were following them running for the hills. What we have in John's Jesus is a testimony. They play, the writer has placed on the lips of Jesus the testimony of the community. Here's who Jesus is for us. For, let me give you an example. There are seven I am statements in the Gospel of John. And I am is not like me just saying, you know, I am hungry, which is true right now. <laughs> Skip breakfast. Um, I am in the Jewish tradition is essentially the name of the divine. When Moses takes off his shoes next to the burning bush and says, okay, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to go tell Pharaoh to let the people go, if I'm going to be the liberator, they're going to ask me who this God is that liberates the enslaved. What do I tell them? God says, you tell them I am who I am, which kind of sounds a little like Popeye, if we're just being honest about it. But I think they stole it from God in Exodus chapter 3. I am who I am, right? It can also be translated, I will be who I will be, which is essentially saying mystery. And so in John, we have Jesus with these seven I am, which is identifying Jesus with God. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door of the sheep. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. I submit to you, these are not statements by Jesus. These are statements about Jesus. This is the writer of John saying, for me and my community, Jesus is the bread of life. He is nourishment for our souls. For us, Jesus has been a light in the darkness. For us, Jesus has been the door through which we have walked into transformation. For us, we have found resurrection life nowhere else outside of this person named Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd we can listen to. We found in him the way, the truth, and the life. We found that Jesus is the true vine, the source of growth and growing for us. I don't think Jesus ever said any of those statements in history. Now, before you say, well, I guess that what you're trying to do is you're just uncomfortable with what the Bible says, so you're trying to change it. No, actually, that's actually not it. What we know that the historical Jesus was like, like how did Jesus communicate? Aphorisms, 
short, pithy statements, parables. None of that is present in the Gospel of John. You know what Jesus does in the Gospel of John? Makes really long speeches. Deeply theologically long speeches. What it seems like is that the writer of John is processing grief and trying to give their community a picture of who Jesus is, who this Jesus they've risked everything to follow is, and to provide them a place to still feel like they belong in their part of a community. Now, John 14, 6 takes place in this series of speeches called the Farewell Discourse, uh, which is Jesus essentially, it takes place on the night he's betrayed, right before the crucifixion, um, and he's spending time. It's when all the other gospels have Jesus doing the Last Supper, right? Where he takes the bread and he takes the wine. That's actually symbolized for John in John chapter 6 with the whole bread of life business. When we come to John, it's 13 through 16, we have this farewell discourse where Jesus does some really interesting things, right? He washes his disciples' feet against their wishes at the beginning. He announces that one of them is going to betray him and that one of them will deny him. He's preparing them for his departure. He's essentially saying, look, Everything's about to get upended for you. The world that you have known, the world that you've inhabited, the, the, the way you've known me that we sat around this table together and we've eaten together and we've walked together and we've laughed together and we've cried at Lazarus' tomb together. We've been through all of this together. This is all going to change. It's all going to be different. I'm not going to be with you in the same way that I have been. So something that's happened to me um, since becoming a parent is that I am ridiculously emotional for no apparent reason, sometimes. But the one thing that gets me all the time are those songs about kids growing up and leaving home. You know what I'm talking about? One of those comes on the radio, ruins my entire day. Ruins my entire day because I know with my oldest, I've got like six more years, which sounds like a lot, but the last 12 have gone by really, really, really fast. And so I know that at some point, my kids, who right now are in my house, who I can protect as best I can, who I can love, and I'm just, I can see them and be with them, there's coming a moment when they're not going to be with us in the same way they have been their entire lives. Our relationship is going to shift. Right? They're going to have their own lives. They're going to have maybe their own families. They're going to have their own houses, hopefully their own paychecks. They're going to have all of this stuff in this world, and we'll still have a relationship. It's just going to be different, right? And what Jesus is saying to them is, look, I'm not going to abandon you. I'm not going to bail on you. But it is going to look different. What you've known, everything you've known is about to change. Do you see how this might be speaking to a group of people who've literally had everything they've ever known just changed? And he says, and, and I mean, here's a beautiful line from early in the farewell discourse. John 13, I give you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you must love each other. This is how everyone will know you're my disciples, when you love each other. He's writing this to people who have just been through a really bad breakup, and he's saying, look, love. Love. Like, there, there are a million ways this could go. And there are a million ways you could react and you could respond to this. And sadly, Christian history shows that the disciples of Jesus, maybe I'm not talking literally these people, I'm saying the disciples of Jesus as a people group, as a people of faith, we have not always followed the voice of love. With heresy trials and inquisitions and witch hunts, anti-Semitism, 
supporting slavery and segregation, silencing the voice of women, marginalizing and demonizing and attacking the LGBTQ plus community. We have not always listened to this commandment, have we? Because I really don't think Jesus just means, hey, you all in this room, exclusively you all in this room, just love each other. And then go out and punch the rest of them, but love each other. Love each other. I think Jesus is saying, no, no, as a, as a species, love each other. This beautiful invitation to walk a different kind of path. And so after Jesus washes their feet and kind of tells them, I'm, this is, this is going to go south real quick, and it's going to look different than it's ever looked, and you're going you're gonna to feel a lot of things, and it's not ever going to be the same. I'm going to be with you, but it's going to look different. After telling them that one of you will betray me and one of you will bail on me, when actually all of them bailed on him. He says this, John 14, verse 1. Don't be troubled. Doesn't that feel sort of like somebody saying, don't be sad? Remember, this is, this is John's Jesus. This is, this is Jesus offering comfort to these disciples. He's trying to give them a picture of where this whole thing is going. By the way, it's really a struggle for me to read this text and not revert to the King James because that's where I memorized this text for the first time. Right, let not your heart, heart be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. And everybody signed up for that. And then you find out that's not at all what it says. It's like a condo at best. Um, which condos are great, but I was promised a mansion. Right? Uh, so here's, here's the text in the Common English Bible. Don't be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. My Father's house has room to spare. If that weren't the case, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When I go to prepare a place for you, I will return and take you to be with me so that where I am, you will be too. You know the way to the place I'm going. Jesus says, look, I'm going to go prepare a place. I'm going to bring you to that place. You know the way. Right, Jesus makes this assumption on the front end. Y'all know how to get there. I'm not going to give you directions. You know. And then Thomas asks, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? How? How do we know? Like, there's nothing in ways. I don't know. How do we know the way. And Jesus responds. Just imagine, enter into the story and just imagine Jesus with compassion like, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you have really known me, you will know my, also know my Father. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And then Philip chimes in, Lord, show us the Father. That'll be enough. Yes, we, that's the revelation we've been looking for. That's the secret. That's the 11 herbs and spices we've been missing. Show us the Father. And Jesus says, Philip, have you seen the, the little uh, the meme that, where Jesus is rolling his eyes and goes, that's not what I said? Have you seen that? Like, I just, just imagine that happening in this moment. Philip. Philip, 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 Philip. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been with you all this time, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I've spoken to you, I don't speak on my own. The Father who dwells in me does his works. 
Trust me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on account of the works themselves. I assure you that whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than these because I am going to the Father. I will do whatever you ask for in my name so that the Father can be glorified in the Son. When you ask me for anything in my name, I'll do it. Jesus is saying, look, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going away. I'm not going to be here. You've, in me, you've seen God, but I'm going away, and I'm going to be somewhere else, and I'm going to be rooting you on and cheering you on and empowering you. And you know the way. Thomas, you know the way. Philip, you've seen God. Now, when Jesus begins by saying, in my Father's house, there's plenty of room to spare. And I'm coming to take you to that. What is he talking about? When Jesus says, I am the way, no one comes to the Father except through me. And, and Father is it's patriarchal language. It's the language that was used in the New Testament that Jesus used for, for the divine. Um, what is Jesus talking about? Is, uh, if you remember in the reading, is the word heaven mentioned at all in that text? Does Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one goes to heaven but through me. No one gets the preferred afterlife experience unless they come through me. That's not what he says at all. Because Jesus isn't talking about the afterlife. In the language of other gospels, we would say he's talking about the kingdom of God. In the language of the Gospel of John, we would say he's talking about full and abundant life. The language is eternal life. But eternal, we think on and on and on and on. But eternal is not so much about time, but about quality. It is a full and overflowing. We might use this language. It's my favorite language to use. Human flourishing. When Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, put in human flourishing. I have come that you may have human flourishing and have it more abundantly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever trusts in him should not perish but have human flourishing. Right? That's sort of what Jesus is getting at. Now, there's also some stuff going on in the text I think that we miss because of context and culture. So it seems like perhaps what Jesus is doing here is he's winking and nudging at some, John's Jesus, John here, is winking and nudging at some wedding language that would be used in the first century. This idea of going away and preparing a place and then returning. Um, some scholars say that that was a pretty common way of framing the betrothal period, that, that a couple would be betrothed and then because most of the time in the ancient world, in the first century Palestine, like you didn't grow up, go to college, get a job, and go get your own place right, in some other town. Uh, most people were in poverty in the first century. So what they did is they kept building on to, and they essentially had an extended family compound, right? And these little houses were called insula. And so you were going to get married, you were going to start a family, what would you do? You wouldn't just go over and like start a new house over here. You would go to the, your family compound, to the place where all of your family and extended relatives lives, and you would begin to make a room, a space for you and your future partner, right? That, that's what's it. This is also not talking about the second coming. Jesus is giving language about the kind of relationship that he has with God and the kind of relationship God longs to have with Jesus' disciples. And I would say with every human being. Right? That's what Jesus is getting at here. This is wedding language. Jesus is saying, like, I'm gonna, we're doing this thing, right? I'm going I'm to help you find connection with God that you never lost, but you're told you did. I, I want you to become aware of what is already true 
for you. And so a couple things about this. I think one, this statement, John 14, 6, I'm the way through the truth. This is about who Jesus is for John's community. They are telling you who they believe Jesus is for them. Yesterday, uh, I can't remember what we were doing, but I was sitting with one of my daughters. We were sitting on my knee, and she leaned back to me, and she said, you are the best daddy in the world. So she now owns a pony. It's the weirdest <laughs> thing. You are the best daddy in the whole world. And you know what I did immediately? I said, honey, I'll be right back. I started knocking on doors in the neighborhood. When they would come to the door, I would say, yeah, best dad in the world. Your dad stinks. <laughs> Go to the next house. No, no, no. Best dad in the world. Your dad stinks. Next door. No, no, no. Best dad in the world. Your dad stinks. Now, if I were to do that, what would you think about me? Would you think, that guy's the best dad in the world? Sort of like on Elf when he sees the sign, best cup, world's best coffee. Right? Like, like just claiming it makes it true for everybody. Right? No, 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 no. Because I bet there are other kids in our neighborhood who think their parents are the best parents in the whole world. You're the best mom in the world. Is that an objective claim? Like, we have, we have interviewed and met all the moms and dads in the world, all the caregivers. We've been with all of them. Sat down, extensive interviews, and we have finally concluded who the best is, and it just happens to be me. I can promise you there are better dads probably in my neighborhood, for sure. Sure. Because it's not a contest, right? It's not a, my daughter's not making an objective claim. She's saying to me, to me, you're the best. And to my kids, I said, you're the best. Is that an objective claim? No. You know what that is? That is a claim deeply grounded in overflowing and abundant love. That is a claim grounded in an experience that has been life-changing. My kids changed my life. And hopefully... I, my wife and I have been a part of changing our kids' lives. That's a beautiful thing. But when she tells me the best thing, it's not an objective claim. It's a celebration of the relationship we share, right? What if that's happening in John? What if John is saying, for us, there is no other way to touch divinity and actually what Jesus has been telling them the whole time, if you read the entire Gospel of John, is actually the thing I'm trying to show you and invite you to, into is something that already resides within you. Right, Thomas, oh, we don't know the way. Yes, you do. We, oh, we don't, haven't seen God. Yes, you have. Right, this is a testimony about who Jesus is for them because for them, Jesus revealed God to them and in them. John Dominic Cross, in a, a historical Jesus scholar, has this great line where he says, Jesus is what God looks like in sandals. And for the people who have trusted this Jesus, the people that this path is how they make sense of the world, the people who have met the divine through this journey, yes. I'll say for, for me, as a human being, Jesus is the way for me. Jesus is the way I experience transformation. Jesus is the way I've learned to think differently about the world. Jesus is the way I've learned to come in contact with divinity, not just outside of me, but within me. The Jesus experience has been that for me. And you see, Jesus had embodied a compassionate, generous, and inclusive divinity, right? 
again and again and again. Is he now saying, well, forget all that. I'm the only way. You know all that stuff we've been doing? Forget that. It's, it's really just about believing, the, not just believing in me, but believing the right things about me. Jesus has embodied an ever-expanding table, a wide embrace, and a willingness to give himself away for the benefit of others, to be broken open and poured out. Is he now saying, uh, go and do the opposite? Go and put real firm boundaries about who's acceptable and unacceptable. Go make the lines between clean and unclean really clear. Go and make sure that people know there's only one way into this thing, and that we have it uh, electrified, with an electrified fence all the way around it. And the only way you get in is if you repeat this prayer that we've given you that is nowhere to be found in the Bible or in most of Christian history until, like, the 20th century. Is that what Jesus... Is he, is he, is he swerving? Or is this a community saying... In Jesus, we found the path to human flourishing, and we, we, can't look, we, can't, we can't look away. We can't stop. We must lean in. I, you know, I, I've been speaking English for 40 years. Um, I have different kinds. I mean, I, I, I can speak hillbilly English pretty well. I grew up in hillbilly land. I can, I can try to speak pop, proper English, but not real well. But that's my mother tongue, right? I can't imagine... And, like, if you throw me off the cliff, I'm not screaming in another language. Now, I do enjoy learning things about other languages. I've had some German. I remember the profanity. <laughs> Comes in handy from time to time around people who don't know the German profanity. Um, I, I know some biblical languages that I can, you know, read a little bit. I, I'm trying to pick up Spanish because I wish somebody told me in high school, like, really? Why are you taking German? Spanish would be more helpful. And, but no matter how many languages, no matter how many Bible courses I could take, how many languages I could learn, there's still one that is your mother tongue. It's the one you pray in, the one you sing in, the one you hope in, the one, the one when you get thrown off a cliff, it's the one you go, ah, in. And for me, that's Jesus. I, I celebrate other religious traditions. I, I celebrate that I have friends who are Muslim, and I have friends who are Jewish, and I have friends who are Hindu, and I have friends who are agnostic, and I have friends who are atheist, and somehow, somehow, even though they don't use the language I use and they haven't been down the path I've been on, they are becoming really wonderful human beings, transformed human beings, generous human beings, compassionate human beings, human beings who are going to leave this world a better place than they found it. Is Jesus saying to those people, well, you didn't have the right formula, so thanks for all the work you did in the world, but it's curtains. I just don't think that's not a Jesus I can get behind because that's not the Jesus I see presented in our text. I see a Jesus who's opening his embrace ever wide, not trying to shrink it down to only those who have the right formula. Do people find the way to God in other religious traditions? Absolutely. And what I find interesting is that whether it's Christian, Jewish, Muslim, you take your pick, that often the language is different and some of the things are different, but the ethic is pretty similar. Because maybe when Jesus in this text, when this community, I am the way, maybe Jesus is. But maybe that way, maybe Jesus is the way that showed up for us but maybe that way popped up in other places in different ways. And what is the goal? 
to make sure everybody has theological correctness or to transform the planet? Because most of my life I had theological correctness and I was miserable because I thought it was bad. Like, this is good news? This is what they want me to go tell people? They want to drop me off at the mall as a teenager and let me tell them they're going to be roasted forever? Like, this is the good news? Maybe the good news is better than we ever... Maybe the way of Jesus and the way of every tradition that's transforming people, maybe, maybe, that's, maybe the way is human flourishing. Maybe it's becoming a better human being. Maybe that's actually the goal. A transformed, compassionate, kind, caring, generous human being. And I'll tell you this, maybe, like if we, whatever, you know, this is just a metaphor, but if we ever stand before God and God's like, well, you did the wrong thing. You told all those people who were doing good that they were okay and they weren't. Then I think I have a moral obligation to go with them. Because the reality is becoming a transformed human being has done more for the world than doctrinal purity ever could. And I want to follow a Jesus and I want contact with a divine that actually celebrates that. It would actually say, y'all need to mess your doctrine up a little bit. It's too, it's too pretty. And it's leaving too many people out. Last thing. I think this is about continuing the work Jesus began. I think that's what this farewell discourse is about. All right. Anybody's parents ever had this conversation with them as a teenager? All right, we're going to be gone for a while. No parties. And you Tom Cruise did anyway, didn't you? Just, just did it anyway. Right, Jesus is leaving. and He's like, look, things are going to get rough. Things are going to be difficult. I'm not abandoning you. He has this great line where he says, in this world, in this system, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I'm overcoming the system. I'm showing you the way out of the system. I'm showing you the way to be free from this system of dehumanization. But I'm going to be gone, and it's going to be different. And listen to these words again from John 14. I assure you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. They will do even greater works than those, than these, because I'm going to the Father. Jesus essentially says, listen, I'm going to get out of your way. I'm slowing you down. I've prepared you. The Spirit of God lives within you. Not because we did a ritual, but because the moment you drew your breath, you were breathing in and out divinity. And now, I think you're ready. I'm going to send you out into the world, and I'm going to entrust this project to you. I'm going to trust that you are the kind of people who you're going to go out and you're going to calm the storms. I trust that you're the kind of people who are going to go out and you're going to metaphorically lay your hands on the lives of other human beings and through your work, they are going to begin to find healing. I trust you're going to go to the outskirts and the margins and the places where all, have been, all these people have just been shoved and excluded. And that you're going to embody me and embrace them and bring them in and let them know that this party was actually thrown in their honor and everybody else just gets to show up. This is, I think, why Jesus does this in John's Gospel. If Jesus has anything close to marching orders for his community, it's this. Go love one another really, really well and go love the world really, really well. And take human flourishing with you everywhere you go. This is not a text that seeks to exclude 99% of the world's population. This is a text that invites us into seeing who we are and what we're here to do radically differently. Are you with me? Let's pray.